Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. These are our men that we're looking at. Last week, we looked at Theodore Herzl. Uh, This week, we're going to be tapping into David Ben-Gurion. And I hope today that you leave with an appreciation for David Ben-Gurion, an appreciation for uh, his uh, intuition, for his smarts, um, and to hear about his passion. Um, And so that's going to happen today because he was the man that uh, that really was spearheading the independence. It finally came to fruition on May 14th, 1948, and Ben-Gurion was the man that led the way. Uh, And then after that, we're going to go back in time. It's going back uh, uh, before uh, David Ben-Gurion. We're going to go back to Eliezer Ben-Yehuda, who impacted Israel's history as well. Um, But right now, we're going to look at Remembering really quick, Theodor Herzl, a man that was born in Budapest, Hungary. He was educated in the spirit of the Jew- German Jewish Enlightenment. He was a journalist. He was a uh, he had his doctorate in law, um, and he had a passion um, for for journalism and for writing, but really for community involvement and for Zionism. He really changed his approach uh, um, over the years of how to understand. And to, uh, to, to to get a better grasp on how do we get rid of anti-Semitism? Well, before he thought we just assimilate. And then over the course of time, because of certain circumstances happening in history, Theodor Herzl changed his approach and assimilation wasn't the way to go. And he believed he needed to help establish a Jewish state. Um, and so we learned about him last week. And you can go on YouTube and follow up on this class and watch the first week if you missed it um, with Theodor Herzl. But I want to talk about this man, David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion was born on October 16th, 1886. And this is just as uh, David or as Theodore Herzl is going to begin uh, moving into the um, realm of promoting Zionism. So remember, these two men are going to be working not necessarily side by side, but Theodor Herzl isn't just a person in a vacuum. Uh, His words and his actions are influencing the world. And uh, the young David Ben-Gurion, his name was actually David Grun or Green, G-R-E-E-N, was born in Plonks, Poland, and he was educated differently than Theodor Herzl. See, Theodor Herzl was educated by secular parents for the most part in a secular worldview, uh, even though he grew up right next to the very influential synagogue in Budapest, uh, it would be David Ben-Gurion or David Grun who would grow up and his parents would be teaching him a different way of thinking than 
uh, uh, Theodore Herzl's parents did, his he would be influenced by his parents uh, to be uh, um, uh, uh, individuals who believed that the Jewish that Jewish people needed a state. They were educated in the spirit of Zionism, and even though. Um, David Ben-Gurion would come to Israel and be more of a secular-minded individual. Um, he always had an appreciation for religion. I don't believe he abandoned uh, his Judaism in some way, and I don't believe he abandoned faith. I just don't, he, he didn't, I, he's not the kind of guy that you would see go to synagogue services all the time. He didn't abandon these things or look down on them. He, I, I think he believed they were very important to establishing a Jewish state, um, but he didn't necessarily consider himself at all a religious person. David Ben-Gurion had a fantastic saying that, that he would say, and it was this, we, we don't just believe in miracles, we depend on miracles when it comes to the founding of the state of Israel. Uh, and so he really uh, was educated um, in the spirit of Zionism, he would go to Hebrew school. He actually wouldn't learn Yiddish. His parents wanted him to learn Hebrew, which is very different from what uh, was going on in Eastern Europe at that time. In Eastern Europe, in, eight, in the late 1800s, you learned Yiddish. You didn't learn Hebrew. You prayed in Hebrew, but you spoke Yiddish. But his parents wanted him to learn Hebrew. Um, David Ben-Gurion would actually immigrate to Palestine um, uh, on uh, September 7th, 1906. We'll talk about more of that later. Um, he formed what was called the Histadrut, uh, Israel's National Trade Union. Um, and he was driven, 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 driven by Zionism and politics. These were his passion. And because of that, it would lead him to become, it would guide him to become, his passion would guide him to become Israel's very first prime minister. Um, but what you're going to see as we go through and we talk a bit about David Ben-Gurion and what was going on around David Ben-Gurion politically is that uh, David Ben-Gurion and the Jewish people that were living in the land uh, uh, prior to Israel's reestablishment and their declaration, I want you to know something. They were developing a government long before Israel became a nation. So that by the time that May 14th comes along, it's not pretty. I'm not saying that what happened on May 14th, 1948 was pretty in any way. And, you know, uh, tied with a nice bow. No, there were complications, no doubt. But the thing to understand is in the same way Theodore Herzl was moving this big rock along, pushing this big boulder to try to get the world to approve a Jewish state. He wasn't just trying to ramrod this thing to happen. He was really, really trying to get the world to see that the world should approve a Jewish state and to get approval from the world to do this. You'll see that they worked hard to develop systems to make that possible by creating the World Zionist Congress and by developing these, these movements. And you'll see them in a, in a moment of encouraging Jewish people to immigrate to uh, the, their ancient homeland, to, uh, to, to the Holy Land, to go back to Israel. They were encouraging them to do these things. There were systems uh, set up. The same thing can be said that as Jewish people were coming back in, especially as David Ben-Gurion comes back in 1906, they begin developing government, a uh, government-like systems and putting things in place that would 
already established a, a, a system of governments governance so that when England, when the British would finally leave, there was already something ready to go. That's amazing. They were ready for a government to slide right into place. David Ben-Gurion is going to play a major role in helping this happen, especially as I briefly touched on this idea of the Histadrut, uh, Israel's national trade union. People, everybody, can I tell you something? Everybody knew David Ben-Gurion. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about him as we move forward. Here's his family in, in Plonsk. David Ben-Gurion and his family, you can see him down there at the very bottom. He's not the little kid. He's kind of a, a little bit older at this point in his life. And as he gets to become a teenager, around a teenager's age, um, uh, he begins to appreciate, and his father as well, uh, uh, his father's name was Avigdor, they begin to read uh, Theodor Herzl's book, Der Judenstaat, or The Jewish State, where Theodor Herzl puts forth a proposal for the establishment of Jew a Jewish state. Remember last week, if you were in my class last week, I shared with you how that impacted the Christian William Heckler. Well, remember, that was just the Christian William Heckler who helped Theodor Herzl get in, an audience with the German Kaiser and get an audience with the Sultan of the, the Ottoman Sultan. Well, other people were also impacted by Theodor Herzl's writings, and it would be Avigdor, David Ben-Gurion's father, and David Ben-Gurion himself, uh, who would actually co-found a Zionist group in Poland called Bene, uh, Benai, Benai uh, Zion, or Children of Zion. And in 1900, think about this, in 1900, it already had a membership of 200 people because of the influence that Theodor Herzl had. So you can see that Theodor Herzl, even uh, in the early 1900s, is built, even though he's he's going to pass off the scene soon, he is building momentum on a grassroots level to the point where David Ben-Gurion is educating his son and influencing his community around him uh, uh, to join a membership, B'nai Zion, or Children of Zion, uh, and already had 200 members at that time. Very, very interesting uh, to think about. David Ben-Gurion would say this about uh, uh, Theodor Herzl, once only in, a thou in thousands of years is such an, an incredible man born. Uh, and so you can see that David Ben-Gurion, even in his young age, had great admiration uh, for uh, Theodore Herzl. Uh, it, as he's growing as a teenager, he actually begins this, um, this group called the Ezra Group. It's a group that ran Hebrew classes for local youth. And in 1903, they collected funds uh, for a pogrom that took place uh, in Kishnev. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a moment because that plays a major role in Jewish people uh, immigrating to uh, Palestine. Uh, uh, one biographer writes that the Ezra Group that, um, that uh, David Ben-Gurion and his friends here had an in influence on developing uh, in his area had uh, as many as 150 members within a year. And that's a youth-oriented group that would encourage Hebrew classes and also immigration to, to uh, Palestine at that time. Um, in Plonsk, there he is right there, the young David Ben-Gurion, 17-year-old Zionist. This is interesting because this is when uh, Theodor Herzl passes away. And remember, Theodor Herzl was very young when he died. He was in his early 40s when he passed away. So he dies at a young age. And remember, Theodor Herzl is the one spearheading this movement and casting the vision that people are behind 
um, like like David Ben-Gurion and like his father, Avigdor, and in Plonk's Poland, a 17-year-old Zionist felt shattered. He's talking, writing about himself, writing about David Ben-Gurion. Uh, back when he was 10, David Grun or David Ben-Gurion had heard that the quote, the Messiah had appeared in one of the foreign cities, a wonderful man, taller than others, good looking, his radiant face adorned by a black beard. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about Theodore Herzl. Almost to David Ben-Gurion and a lot of Jewish people, uh, a messianic figure. I don't believe they really thought he was the Messiah, but messianic in the sense of what uh, impact he had on the Jewish community. So much so that when he died, it said this. Now this teenage Zionist worried about this great loss to our unfortunate suffering people. There will not arise again in our midst such a wonderful man who combined the bravery of the Maccabees, the, the purposefulness of David, the strong devotion of Rabbi Akiva, who died while reciting God is one, the Shema, and humbleness of Hillel, the beauty of Rabbi Yehuda Hanisi, and the fiery love of Rabbi Yehuda Levi. Can I tell you what's funny? Again, think about this. He's drawing up all of these, not only biblical uh, uh, heroes, but the heroes of Judaism, the rabbinical heroes, and the, he's attaching them to Theodore Herzl, who's not even a religious individual, which is quite ironic to think about, but connecting him to what he would consider heroes of the Jewish faith after the passing of Theodore Herzl. Honestly, I, there was loss. And I'm sure this young man, David Ben-Gurion, David Grun, thought, uh, all is lost. I mean, who's going to carry the torch forward? Who's going to make this possible to establish a Jewish state now that um, uh, 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 um, Theodore Herzl is gone? But I wrote in my book this one line because it made me think sometimes you don't ever know what God has called for you. You know, whenever you look at the world and you think, well, who can do this? You know, especially if somebody who is a great leader passes off the scene, well, who can carry the baton forward? Here is David Ben-Gurion writing about the loss of his hero. And yet little did that young Zionist know that he would be the one to lead the Israelites across the Jordan River into the promised land. I believe David Ben-Gurion never thought once in his life that after Theodore Herzl died, it would be him that would stand in Tel Aviv and read the Declaration of Independence, which I'm hoping we get a chance to read this evening, um, a, a, a bit of it. Um, he immigrates to Palestine in 1906. He, he does this by way of the port of Jaffa. And I have a beautiful picture of Jaffa there. And if you've never come to Israel before or been to Israel, I hope that you come with us on the Up to Jerusalem tour. We'll go to Jaffa. You can stand there. Um, but you know what really prompted him to go to, uh, to Palestine um, in 1906 was the uh, two things. Number one, it was something he had been taught all along and he was telling people they should do. Uh, but this pogrom that I was telling about that happened in 1903 uh, sparked rampant anti-Semitism throughout Eastern Europe. And he would ultimately immigrate as a part of the second Aliyah, a second immigration of Jewish people that would go back to, the, to, to their ancient homeland. In Palestine, he first worked as a, in agriculture, picking oranges in Petatikva, which is not far from Tel Aviv at all. 
as a wine grower in Zikran Yaakov, which is further north on the coast of the Mediterranean, um, near the coast of the Mediterranean, near the Carmel Mountain Range. And later he would become a journalist. Um, the Chisnell pogrom, I want to talk about this for a moment, because this will impact not only David Ben-Gurion, but a lot of Jewish people, and even impact Theodore Herzl. Because the Chisnell pogrom uh, or massacre was an anti-Jewish riot in Moldova, which was Russia at that time. And on April 19th uh, through the 21st in 1903, during the pogrom took place on Easter, where 49 Jewish people were killed, 92 were gravely injured, a number of Jewish women were raped, over 500 were lightly injured, and 1,500 homes were damaged. And I have a picture here of that for you. Um, it was so influential that American Jews actually began in large scale organizing financial help and assisted the immigration. And the incident focused worldwide attention on the persecution of Jews in Russia and led Theodore Herzl at this time in 1903 to propose to the World Zionist Congress a Uganda plan as temporary refuge for the Jews. The Uganda plan is such an interesting plan. You know, they were having a hard time uh, convincing the Ottoman Turks to develop a Jewish homeland in um, in in uh, in the Ottoman area in Palestine. They were getting neglected here and turned away there and rejected. And so, you know, they start they started losing hope. And then this pogrom happens and Theodore Herzl proposes to the World Zionist Congress. Hey, what about Uganda in Africa? The Uganda plan was actually a plan that they put forth in the World Zionist Congress to consider building a Jewish state because of that extreme anti-Semitism that was not only happening in Europe, but also happening in Eastern Europe and as far as Russia to move maybe a Jewish state or create a Jewish state in Uganda. Well, guess what? That got turned down pretty quick by the Jewish people in the World Zionist Congress, but it was a plan that was put forth as a result of this pogrom that was the same pogrom that actually convinced David Grun, David uh, Ben-Gurion, to move uh, to Palestine, to immigrate uh, to Palestine. Um, he would actually move to Palestine and he would be one of the founders. See, this is where David Ben-Gurion is so good. He doesn't sit and let grass grow under his feet. He will get active immediately. He will be the one to spearhead um, many of the, of the programs. He will be the one to community organize. And you know, you know what? People will follow behind him and get behind him. Um, he uh, uh, joins the Labor Zionist Party. See, they're already developing parties, even pre-state. Think about this. Before the state of Israel is even established, they already have political parties in place. So there's already political parties uh, moving uh, to help develop a government, essentially, to have a government that would rule over the Jewish people of Palestine. In 1909, he was a founder of the Hebrew organization Hashomer, which is in Hebrew, the guard, uh, which would have been like a, 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 a loosely knit together group of Jewish people that would protect uh, other Jewish people um, at this time, the Hashomer. In 1910, he was one of the founders and first editors of a newspaper for his party, the Ha'achudot, which in Hebrew means union. And he began to sign. This is interesting. Remember, his name is David Grun, David Green. And this is when he begins to sign his name uh, David Ben-Gurion, and he was inspired by one of the leaders, uh, a Jewish leader during the second Jewish revolt 
um, Yosef Ben-Gurion, or the first Jewish revolt, I'm sorry, against the Romans, uh, a, a, a leader, a Jewish revolt leader named Yosef Ben-Gurion, he would take on the name David Ben-Gurion. And that's where he got that from, as he would sign his names in his editorials that he would write in this newspaper. Now, 1917, remember now, Theodor Herzl is gone, everybody. Theodor Herzl has uh, been off the scene for quite some time now. Um, it's 1917. It's been more than a decade that uh, Theodor Herzl has been gone. Jewish people continue to immigrate over to uh, Palestine. The Ottomans still have control of it prior to World War I. They continue to immigrate over and develop kibbutzes, develop towns, develop farms, agriculture. And so this is, uh, by this point, Tel Aviv is already well-established and moving forward. So you have a Jewish city called Tel Aviv on the coast of the Mediterranean. And what happens in 1917 is amazing. I want to read this really quick because this is called the Balfour Declaration, a very important document that Ben-Gurion's going to speak about. And he says this, Dear Lord Rothschild, uh, this comes, um, uh, 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 this is the um, excuse me, the uh, uh, Balfour Declaration. It says, I have much pleasure to, in conveying to you on behalf of his majesty's government, the British government, this is after World War I, by the way, the British win and they take control of Palestine and they make it the British mandate. Uh, on behalf of the majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionists' aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His majesty's government with the favor with favor, the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done with prejudice, the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights or polit and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Man, up this is this is it. This is what they were waiting for everybody. England takes over, the British take over the land that was once controlled by the Ottoman Turks in Palestine. They make it the British mandate and the moment they get control of that land, the same year that they defeat the Ottomans in World War 1, they say we're going to help establish a Jewish state. And this is what Ben-Gurion writes in November 1917. England has not returned the land to us. A land is not acquired without tribulations of work and creativity, without the effort of building and settlement. The Hebrew nation itself must change this right to a living and existing fact. Do you hear what he's saying? It's not enough. It is not enough that the king promises to help and the, and the British government help to establish a Jewish state. Thank goodness they allowed that. But it's up to us now to make it happen, which becomes an effort. It's not just something we can sit there and go, all right, British, build us a state now. No, it will be Ben-Gurion and his team, his other, the other politicians, the other leaders that he has, um, leaders like Golda Meir, who will come alongside and help establish a Jewish state to raise funds from other countries, um, to help establish a, a, a military, a, a defense unit that would develop over time. All of these things that would develop a government that would come into place the moment that a state is possible. And this was written in 1917. Remember, it won't be till 1948 that a country is finally developed. 
But I want you to see here, it, a Hebrew nation itself must change this right to living and existing effect. It's up to us because it won't be easy. In November 2nd, 1917, with the, uh, with the Balfour Declaration, that's a big moment for them. The world, the, the British Empire approved it. Then in April of 1920, the San Remo Agreement comes along with multiple nations agreeing uh, in San Remo, Italy, multiple nations, not just the British Empire now, multiple nations get together, I, ble I believe seven of them, and agree that the Jewish people have a right to exist in Palestine to develop their own homeland, their own country, their own sovereignty. They sign that into action. And yet they're still going to be, he notices, do you see this? England has not returned the land to us. A land is not acquired without tribulations of work and creativity. You know, this is amazing that he sees this coming. It, you would think it would have been easy for them to develop a state by this point. But between 1917 and 1948, a lot will happen in global politics that will show that Ben-Gurion knew this is not going to be an easy process. In fact, the British will lose sight of the Balfour Declaration. The British will kind of begin to side with the Arab nations and the Arab uh, Muslims that are uh, that are living in and Christians that are living in in uh, in Palestine and the British mandate at that time. And so, you know, the, the Ben-Gurion was right. This isn't an easy task. Do not read this paper and think it's just going to be handed to us. We have to make it happen ourselves. In 1919, Ben-Gurion participated in the founding of the uh, Adut Ha'avodah Party and was elected as its leader. He was also the founder of the National Trade Union. Can I tell you something about most Israelis or most Jewish people that were developing a Jewish state between 1917 and 1948? And even before that, as these Eastern European and Russian Jewish people were making Aliyah to, to Palestine, even before World War I, when they came over with with David Ben-Gurion. Most of them, you ready? I, I, this might shock you. Most of them were socialists. Some of them were communists. That's why the kibbutz system existed in Israel. Have you ever been to Israel and gone on a kibbutz? A kibbutz, they've kind of, they've fizzled. The kibbutz has fizzled over the year, over the years because capitalism reigns in Israel now. But for many, many, many years, what helped found the Jewish state was the, kibbut, uh, the kibbutzniks, was the kibbutz lifestyle. And a kibbutz is a commune. It's not a big Russian empire type of communism and socialism. No, it's small scale, little communities. And we're talking the, to the point where you'll have a doctor in the kibbutz, you'll have a guy who does the laundry, you'll have a woman who cooks the meals, you'll have a, a, a family who watches over the kids, and everybody does their part, and everybody gets paid the same amount, and everybody, no matter what your job is, you all get paid the same, and your kids even, you have your kids till the age of two, I believe, and then once they turn two, they go into their own little house, and they begin to form their own commune. Uh, of course, they're supervised, supervised but it's communism on a small scale. That's because they're taking everything they knew from Russia and importing it into Israel. And can I tell you something? David Ben-Gurion was as socialist as they get. He was the founder of the National Trade Union. Everybody knew David Ben-Gurion because everybody, because remember, it's a socialist country at this point, lots of socialist underpinnings. Everybody knew David Ben-Gurion because everybody was a part of the National Trade Union. Uh, the Histadrut, as it was called, and he led it. They knew him. He had cachet. 
he had name recognition. He was also, he was a secretary general from 1921 until 1935 for the Histadrut. He also served as the Histadrut representative in the World Zionist Organization. And very important, everybody, the Jewish agency, which would play a major role in the establishment of the Jewish state. It's the proto-government. It's the government before the government of 1948, the first Israeli government. The Jewish agency would function as the government of the Jewish people in Palestine, of the, of the British mandate. And he was elected the chairman of both organizations. Think about that. In 1935, he's running the Jewish agency, and he's also running the trade union. Everybody knows David Ben-Gurion. His name was everywhere. And I'm sure some people loved him, and some people didn't. Why? Because that's politics, okay? In 1947, something amazing happens. The world agrees that the Jewish people need their own homeland, especially after the atrocities of the Holocaust. We've already got, like I said, we've got the Balfour Declaration, that one's in the books. We've got the San Remo agreements, that one's in the books. The problem is, if you notice, the world approves a Jewish state, but notice what they get. They get the little white slivers. You see the white slivers in the map? That's what they were promised them. What did they originally promise them in the San Remo agreement? The whole thing. The San Remo Agreement promised all of it, even as much, I believe, as the Transjordan that you see over there, uh, east of the Jordan River. Well, look what happens after uh, they slice and dice everything up in 1947. They agree to a Jewish state. The world does. The British are hands off at this point. They will actually object. That They will um, uh, remove themselves from voting um, uh, in the U.N., um, but uh, enough nations will approve it. And look at the little slivers of land that they get. The majority of it is desert that you can see down there in the Jordan Valley, I mean, in the Negev. They don't get any of the Jordan Valley, um, and they're stuck really close up against their enemies in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. But still, you know what's amazing is that David Ben-Gurion was very disappointed as the leader of the Jewish people. He was very disappointed to see this map. He was disappointed. This is the original two-state solution, everybody. Here it is right here in 1947. The world said, we'll give you a Jewish state, but here it is, little sliver here, a couple miles between the Mediterranean Sea and the and uh, what would, you know, the um the Jordan Valley there where the the uh the border would be, all this desert land. We'll give you tiny little bits. And they were very upset. But you know what? David Ben-Gurion, as he said in the very beginning, as a result of the Balfour Declaration, this will come with trials and tribulations, but we have to make it happen. And you know what? He led the people and they agreed, yes, we will take this as a country. You know what the Arab uh, nation said and uh, the, um, the, the Arabs living um, in the British mandate said, no, thank you. We don't want this deal at all. So the Jewish people said yes. The Arabs said no. The Muslims said no. They wanted nothing to do with it. Um, and so they were actually more will, uh, will, uh, willing and uh, desire, uh, desirable to push the Jewish people into the sea. We'll take care of them in battle. So they say no thank you to UN Resolution 181, the, the, this map here. The Jewish people say, yes, we'll take it. Now, this will become very important, everybody, because by this point, David Ben-Gurion, the Jewish people, and the United States and the world know that if Israel declares itself independent, you know what will happen? They will be run into the sea. They know it. They know they're going to war immediately. And so uh, the British say, we're leaving, we're going to get out, 
um, uh, on May uh, 15th, I believe, around that time. And so it will be May 14th that uh, Israel needs to declare its independence because that's a Saturday, May 15th. May 14th is a Friday, and they're running up against Shabbat. So there's going to be lots of fun pressure for them. Again, remember I said not everything works as cleanly as they thought it would. Uh, here they are developing an opportunity to build a state, a government, thinking they would get more land. And I'm going to tell you what was on David Ben-Gurion's heart. Can I tell you? This is actually something historians write about a lot when it comes to David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion wanted Jerusalem. That will come up over and over and over and over again in the in the independence war that happens between 1948 and 1949, when they're fighting for their independence. David Ben-Gurion wants Jerusalem, and uh, his advisors are saying, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put all your energy up there. We need the Negev. We need these other areas. We need areas in the north. But David Ben-Gurion's heart was set on Jerusalem because as a leader, he knew Jerusalem is what would unite the people. And his advisors were saying, I think that's a tall order given the, the, given the resources that we have, given what it takes to get to Jerusalem, taking the, 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 the fights that would take place up there, we should invest our energies elsewhere. And he will end up listening. They will have a, uh, a fights over Jerusalem. Originally, if I can just say this, originally the UN, if you notice that map there, Jerusalem is kind of gray. Um, I don't know if I could, oh yeah, there we go. It's kind of blurry. But if you notice, it's gray around Jerusalem. That's because the UN understood the sensitivity of Jerusalem to Jews and Muslims um, and Christians and wanted to make it an international city under the auspices of the United Nations. And so originally Jerusalem was gonna be a UN uh, uh, um, controlled, but as a result of the fact that uh, the, the Arab nations came in to fight Israel after their independence, uh, that whole thing just goes up in flames. And so uh, the Jerusalem ends up getting divided in half, East Jerusalem to Jordan, and then West Jerusalem to Israel. So the original plan was to make it an international city. Uh, well, that didn't work out at all. So um, what happens on May 14th, 1948, there's our guy again. Remember I showed this last week, Theodore Herzl, one of my heroes, my beard hero, okay? Um, there he is up there um, looking down on all of these uh, uh, leaders, the uh, Jewish agency. Uh, let me tell you where they are. I love this story, actually. This is just, this is so Israeli, okay? It's just Israeli. I love Israeli people. Um David Ben-Gurion knows that war is coming. If he announces independence, war is imminent. It will happen immediately. So the building they're in is actually in an art museum. And the art museum sits, two-thirds of the art museum sits below ground. So technically, it's almost like a basement um, where, they're, where, where they're located. The windows are up high. And David Ben-Gurion chose the art museum on purpose because if war does break out, he can continue and still safely do it because he's partially underground. Um, so that's important to see. The other is this is actually Mayor Dizengoff, the very first mayor of Tel Aviv. It's his home. And after Mayor Dizengoff passed away, he gave his home in Tel Aviv, one of the first homes in Tel Aviv, to, um, to uh, the Jewish state. Um, and to the Jewish people, uh, and they turned it into an art museum. And so technically it's two functions. It's Mayor Dizengoff's first um, house, it's his house, and it also served as a, a Israel's art museum. So you can see some of the art in the background there on the right-hand side. 
Um, so he chooses this place for safety, um, knowing that the Egyptians could come in and bomb Tel Aviv. And so he sends out, and this is my favorite part of the story, he sends out invitations to select people, okay? Select. It's not a big building, people. Well, this isn't, this is not, uh, you know, Steve and I were just on Capitol Hill. We're not talking about the Capitol building here. It's a tiny art gallery, okay? <laughs> and so they're sitting in there and he in, invites a few hundred people to it. Please, it says in the invitation, please be quiet. Don't talk about this. We don't want to raise concerns. We don't want to become a target in case something happens. So just, you know, don't say anything. Come Friday at this time, um, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, guess what? Try keeping a secret in Israel. Impossible, impossible. Thousands of people are outside. I don't know who leaked this thing. They probably all leaked it, okay? Uh, it was the, it's a, the first leak of the state of Israel, okay? Um, and so there they are. They're outside. They're chanting. Everybody's excited. If, if David Ben-Gurion was trying not to get any attention, well, guess what? That He totally failed there, okay? So now he's got a huge crowd outside. People are crammed in, and he begins to read the Declaration of Independence. And I want to see if I can bring it up here really quick on my phone. Israel's uh, Declaration of Independence. And let me see if I can bring it up here so that I can read it to you, um, because I think it's important for you to hear it. Um, how it sounds and how what what he does uh, to connect everything from the Bible um, all the way to the modern state of Israel. So listen to this. This is David Ben Gurion. He's standing there. Um, he writes. He says this: uh, the land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here, their spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here, they first attained to statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave to the world the eternal book of books. After forcibly ex exiled from their land, the people kept faith with it throughout their dispersion and never ceased to pray and hope for their return to it and for the restoration in it of their political freedom. Impelled by this historic and traditional attachment, Jews strove in every successive generation to reestablish themselves in their ancient homeland. In recent decades, they returned in their masses, pioneers, immigrants coming to Eretz Israel in defiance of restrictive legislation and defenders. They made deserts bloom, revived the Hebrew language, built villages and towns, created a thriving community, controlling its own economy and culture, loving peace, but knowing how to defend itself, bringing the blessings of progress to all countries' inhabitants and aspiring toward an independent nationhood. Do you hear that? He's saying, we have been working through trials and tribulations to establish ourselves in this land. We've been doing it and we are ready. That's what he's saying. In the year 5,657, at the, which is 1897. Now listen to what he does here. He says, at the summons of the spiritual father of the Jewish state. Well, who's the spiritual father of the Jewish state? Listen, you ready? Theodore Herzl. That's why he's behind him. The first Zionist Congress convened and proclaimed the right of the Jewish people to national uh, rebirth in its own country. This right was recognized in the Balfour Declaration. Now he's pulling all the pieces together of the 2nd uh, November, 1917, and reaffirmed in the mandate of the League of Nations, which in particular gave international sanction to the historic connection between the Jewish people and Eretz Israel and to the right of the Jewish people to rebuild its national home. 
the catastrophe which recently befell the Jewish people, the massacre of millions of Jews in Europe, was another clear demonstration of the urgency of solving this problem of its homelessness by reestablishing the, in Eretz Israel the Jewish state, which would open the gates of homeland wide to every Jew and confer upon the Jewish people the status of fully privileged member of the Committee of Nations. Survivors of Nazi Holocaust in Europe, as well as Jews from other parts of the world, continued to migrate to Eretz Israel, undaunted by difficulties and restrictions and dangers. And he goes on talking about World War II, and he goes on talking about the United Nations General Assembly. And that's when he says, we declare with effect from the moment of the termination of the mandate being tonight, the eve of Sabbath, uh, the 15th May of 1948, until the establishment uh, of the elected regular authorities of the state in accordance with the constitution, which never came about, uh, which shall be adopted by the elected constituency assembly by October 1st. That never happened. The constitution never came, even though it was in the declaration of, uh, of Israel. The state of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of its exiles. Think about that. He went through biblical history. He went through history of the Jewish people striving to reestablish themselves for thousands of years, praying for it. He talked about what he called the spiritual father of modern Zionism, Theodor Herzl. He talked about the Balfour Declaration. He was pulling all of the pieces together to say, we have permission, not just because the world gives us permission, but because of our, of our heritage here, because of our unique biblical connection here. I think it's God's divine uh, providence that in 1947, just a year prior to the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, in 1947, a Bedouin boy in the Negev desert stumbled upon the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that if anybody says, what deed do you have to this land, Jewish people? They can go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, scrolls that have existed for more than 2,000 years to say, we deserve it because it's right here in the Bible. And David Ben-Gurion will highlight that and he will bring it to life. And he will say, uh, he will ultimately say that this ending in the Declaration of Independence, placing our trust in the rock of Israel, we affix our signatures to this proclamation at the session of the Provisional Council of State on the soil of the homeland in the city of Tel Aviv. I love that. Do you hear what it says? Placing our trust in the rock of Israel. You know, we think we have it hard here in America with politics. That phrase, rock of Israel, almost canceled the Declaration of Independence. Now, see, as Christians, when we hear rock of Israel, we all go, amen, brother, amen. God is the one behind this. David Ben-Gurion, my kind of guy. Well, guess what? There were religious people that were saying, I want Torah passages in that declaration. The religious politicians, the Orthodox, were saying to David Ben-Gurion, when you write that thing, and actually an Orthodox man helped him write it. He said, if when you write this, there's got to be Torah law passages in this thing. Then the communist seculars on the other side of the aisle are going, if you put anything about God in there, I'm not showing up. I'm not signing anything. And so this phrase, rock of Israel, was a compromise. It was a compromise between the religious and the seculars of Israel that would compromise together under the leadership of David Ben-Gurion because he appreciated both of them. He knew that, you, that they needed each other. 
The religious needed to be there and the seculars needed to be there, according to David Ben-Gurion. And they settled on this. The rock of Israel, that could be our very own spirit. The spirit of our, that drives us, the Jewish spirit within us, or it could be the rock of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's however you want to interpret it. But either way, and I hope as a Christian, you went right to God because that's where I go. But for a secular person, it's a compromise that they made it and almost made it so they couldn't show up and do the Declaration of Independence. And then the secular said this, if any rabbi prays during this thing, I'm out. I'm out of here. Oh, that made that made the religious so angry. So they said, OK, fine, we won't do anything. I think they crossed their fingers behind the back at their backs. Because the moment, remember, they're about to enter into Shabbat. The moment, the moment that the declaration was over, you know what happened? The rabbi got up and did a prayer in Hebrew. Oh, I'm sure it made everyone furious. But now it's done. It's over. They waited till it was finished, and they still got their prayer in, okay? If you want to know Israeli politics, boom, there it is right there. What you see in 1948, May 14th, between the religious and between the seculars is still the same thing that's happening today when you turn the news on and you see the conversation between the religious and the secular. But do you know what Steve and I heard last night on Capitol Hill? That just goes to show Israel's democracy. They're the only democracy in the Middle East. Israel's democracy is still at work. It was at work the same way it was when he announced the declaration, David Ben-Gurion, and he worked with the people together and it's the same way today. It's the same way. And so David Ben-Gurion is, uh, is the one who would bring this into fruition and lead the state of Israel through their independence uh, in the independence war, because it would only be within a few hours that Egypt would come and bomb Tel Aviv and enter into the war. Uh, the war would go from May 14th, uh, 1948 um, into, um, into 1949. Um, and uh, and eventually end in an armistice agreement. Um, uh, it, it, so again, that would become the nature of war. Uh, uh, the city of Jerusalem would be split, and they would actually acquire more land than what the UN had promised them. Um, so they acquired a little more land than what the UN had, was going to give them, but at that point, uh, that they had settled, and that was it. Um, and so the armistice line was signed. Jordan would take this area, Egypt would take this area, and Israel would take areas uh, all around here, and their nation would be established. Um, I want to show one thing here really quick. I think this sums up David Ben-Gurion perfectly. Do you see him there? It's one of my favorite pictures of David Ben-Gurion. Alice Herzig loves this picture too. I know it. There's actually, when you come to Israel with me and uh, we go to the beaches of Tel Aviv, uh, there's actually a statue, a cartoon-like statue of David Ben-Gurion doing this move. He really believed in exercise and keeping yourself healthy and, and doing certain types of exercises. I forget what they even called this. Um, but he would do this on the beaches uh, of Tel Aviv, and uh, and it's kind of become a historical connection to the Israel's founding and and uh, and the, the the fun that David Ben Gurion was. David Ben Gurion was Israel's longest serving prime minister until a man that you all know, Bibi Netanyahu. Bibi Netanyahu is now Israel's longest serving prime minister. He is, uh, but David Ben Gurion held that title for a very very long time. And eventually, um, uh, David Ben-Gurion would pass away in the 1970s. Um, but he would be one who would lead his people. He has national identity. 
Uh, he's the first prime minister. He's the George Washington of, of Israel in many, many ways. He helped establish democracy. He helped grow the Jewish state. And to think he mourned the loss of Theodore Herzl, not knowing who would carry this baton forward. Well, many Jewish men carried the baton forward, but ultimately it would be David Ben-Gurion um, from Plonsk, Poland, who would immigrate and make himself a national figure by claiming Israel's independence, declaring Israel's independence and leading them for many, many years. His party, which would become the Labor Party over time, would be the major party of Israel for decades, decades and decades, until the 1990s, actually. David Ben-Gurion's party uh, would become uh, the, the major party up until the 1990s when the conservatives finally begin to come in and change things. And that's when you get a figure like Bibi Netanyahu, who begins to implement more of an American way of politics, an American way of ec uh, economy, economics, changing the way of the past. David Ben-Gurion, very socialist in his approach, and then you have on the flip side a Bibi Netanyahu who was very capitalist and would change the way that Israel interacts with the world economically and, and, and various foreign policies as well. So all that to say, uh, a hero, really. And what's interesting is that uh, David Ben-Gurion's wife didn't care much for Israel. That's, she was a communist. <laughs> she was a communist who didn't believe in statehood. Didn't she could care less about politics. But they lived together in Tel Aviv, um, and he would actually retire down into the desert. It was really his goal to make the deserts bloom. Um, and so that's David Ben-Gurion, um, the George Washington of Israel. If you have any questions, please go ahead and put them in the chat box. Um, uh, it, it's a, a great um, lesson on um, on the history of Israel to, to, to re recount the now 75 years. But can I also say this? Next week, it, um, next week we're going to look at what something that David Ben Gurion tapped into in the Declaration of Independence, and that was this. Do you, do you remember? Did you hear what he said? How we helped develop, or we developed a Hebrew, the Hebrew language. We reestablished the Hebrew language. Well, that wouldn't be possible without a man named Eliezer Ben Yehuda. And oh man, if you want a story, uh, a great history lesson, uh, you got to come back next week for Eliezer uh, Ben Yehuda. Very, very interesting individual. And uh, he doesn't get his name mentioned in the declaration, but David Ben-Gurion certainly taps into it there um, when he talks about it as a part of the culture of the Jewish people. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.